Welcome to the Peak Curiosity Podcast. This is Abigail. Today I have a man called Mark Minnell. He is an author and pastor from the UK. He also has been a missionary in Uganda and has done all sorts of interesting things like that. You can find his books and blog at markmenel.net as well as Amazon. Seriously, go buy his books. It is 7 a.m. Gosh, that's keen. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, what was really funny is I was actually so scared that I wasn't going to wake up on time. You've been so awake for hours. I've been awake for hours, and when I was sleeping, it wasn't good. Uh, well, weirdly enough, I woke up at half past three this morning and didn't go back to sleep either. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's a bummer. Yeah, so I did sleep good, and then I was also really confused with the time difference between us. So then I, uh, it's seven hours, but I thought it was nine. So then I set my alarm for four. <laughs> and then at 4 a.m. I realized, wait, this isn't right. So then I set my alarm for five and then it, I got up and made coffee. And then I realized that still isn't right. <laughs> so that would be sort of west, uh, that'd be sort of Pacific time. Yeah. With it, yeah, like, out, yeah. So yeah. Rough morning, but here I am. Well done. Have you had some coffee? I have. A couple cups. So, would you mind giving me just a couple minute introduction to who you are and, and uh, we'll get into some of your books? Okay. So, uh, I'm Mark Mel, and I'm married to Rachel. We've got two kids who are at university, or rather, uh, my son, Josh, has just left university and my daughter is in her second year. And I've been ordained in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, since 97. So that's 23 years now. And we've done various different things. Um, I've worked in a few churches in England and taught in a seminary in Uganda for a few years. And um, for the last, well, six years, sort of as my primary job, but um, for the number of years before that sort of part-time, I've been working for something called Langham Partnership, which is a global um, organization that was started by John Stott. And we work in about 70 countries trying to partner with local churches. So we're not a mission agency. We're not sort of sending people to go and work in other places. We are trying to work and support church leaders in their countries and meeting some of them the needs as they see them. So rather than just from the West telling people how to do things. We're trying to find out what people want and need and then seeing what we can do. So that's me. Awesome. That sounds like a busy life. Um, it's a bit. Although this year, in all its weirdness, uh, yeah, I, I was in Turkey last week. That was my first trip since February. Normally I'm doing one or two trips a month. So it's all been very, very odd. Wow. Was it nice or are you bored at home? I, I, I'm not bored. Um, I think it feels like I've been working harder than I've ever worked um, and Zooming here, there and everywhere. Um, <laughs> but I definitely miss 
real live specimens of humanity in yes. situ in you know being in the same place as somebody um yeah i've definitely missed that and i get itchy feet yeah yeah i have been really sad about the changes in social behavior how uh i don't know how it is over there for you but just around here i live in a small town and people are less likely to look you in the eye when you go right. by and i don't like it no it's horrible and and actually so i take the dog out every day and you know there are a few sort of people you meet regularly doing the same but since since all this started it's it, you suddenly realize other people are now a threat mm -hmm. yeah even though they're, they're they're probably not and you know people are pretty good here on the whole about wearing masks i think by now though people are just very fed up and um you know just annoyed with it all but i you know that's just the way things are but the idea that instead of being a kind of oasis or support the idea that other people now are a threat and you've got to avoid them or you certainly you know you have this sort of dance on on the side of the road um who's going to step into the road and you know and it's it's, it's it's actually if you do catch their eye it's a disaster because then you you sort of do it in parallel and then you sort of bump into each other so you you, you can't look in the eye can you you've got to you've got to avoid them somehow um so yeah i, I really don't like that at all yeah it's pretty tough What's your favorite animal? African fish eagle. Okay. Got the most amazing cry that if you are, so Uganda, where we lived, a beautiful country. The source of the Nile is in Uganda and it's a very fertile and lush country. And we sometimes went on holiday up um, in the game parks. And at night you would hear this haunting cry across the whole savannah with a fish eagle sitting at the top of the tree overlooking the Nile and it's just and very very impressive bird but that, that's the thing that springs to mind immediately okay you weren't expecting that were you I wasn't no <laughs> definitely not what's your favorite article of clothing a really really warm scarf so I've got one that I lost, you know, I lose most things, um, but it had sort of silk on one side and wool on the other. And that was a really nice scarf. Soft um, and warm. Exactly. And, and I'd like to think quite stylish, but uh, <laughs> probably in a minority. Oh, that's funny. So uh, just to catch the listener up for a minute. So I contacted you because a couple of years ago, I had heard you on another podcast and you were doing some advertising for your book, When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. And it sat on my table. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't think- It's got a dark and depressing cover, hasn't it? Let's face it. It, it has a dark and depressing cover. <laughs> I was depressed, so you know how motivated you are to do things. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was teaching piano lessons to my nephews at the time, and my sister came in, she saw it on the table and picked it up, and within an hour, she'd read over half of it. Flipping egg. Must yeah. have missed out all the words. Yeah. She yeah. went to the pictures. <laughs> she went to the pictures. Well, she thought she only had an hour to read it, so she was right. trying to cram it. But of course I let her finish it. But what ended up happening is she had never read anything that halfway described 
how she'd been feeling for years and basically decades. And so it brought her quite a bit of liberation and just knowing that she wasn't an insane person. And that change in her, she got some help and just our family started talking about things and it, that change radiated out into all of us. So it's been quite a life changer for us and our family. And I, I am sure it has been for others. Well, that's amazing to hear. Thank you so much for telling me. I mean, I, I, yeah, you have no idea when you sort of write something um, and it goes out there, you know, it's it's completely out of your hands. Um, But, you know, that's a test of trusting in the Lord to do what he wants to do. So it's amazing to hear that. Yes. Yeah. God is good. All the time. All the time. So would you mind giving a short summary of your experiences leading up to your breakdown, mm-hmm. which then caused you to write this book. So I think very often if people have crises, that there'll be a key trigger or um, a trauma and, you know, people will then talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the end, that's exactly what I was diagnosed with on our return from, from East Africa. But, um, what often gets revealed is kind of fractures or, or fault lines that have been there for long, uh, for, for many years beforehand. And so this was 2005. We'd had some really quite difficult things to have to handle when we were in Africa. Our kids were small then. And uh, I think without realizing it at all, the, the, the pressure was just building up. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as we came back to the UK, my job had come to an end. We'd looked at other jobs out there. Nothing quite sort of seemed to fit. And in the Lord's providence, that was just as well, because looking back, there was no way I could have done anything. Certainly not immediately. But coming out of, you know, the, the, the situation um, was a release. And it was a bit like the you know, having a pressure cooker and the lid coming off mm-hmm. and suddenly it, 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 it really shows itself. So all the pressure was there, but I didn't realize it. Um, but I think what realized, what kind of broke was some of those underlying flaws, well, not let's say flaws, but um, yeah, tensions and unresolved issues um, going way back to, to when I was a child you know, uh, I was sent away to boarding school at the age of eight. So I boarded from eight to 18. And there are all kinds of consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which were directly related to what happened um, in 05. So I guess something was going to happen, probably. It just so happened that uh, the situation in Uganda, I, I sort of don't need to go into details massively, but it was to do with one of our students who's a refugee from Congo who had been a kind of sort of valiant for truth kind of figure. He's someone who just, when he encountered injustice and uh, just cruelty to others, he, he just had to do something about it, had to stand up to it. And that was a very dangerous thing for him to do. And because again, he was a refugee, he had just no support or no help. And he ended up being abducted, um, being tortured, left for dead and told to leave the country or they would kill him and his family. And we ended up having to 
look after him and the family for about two years until eventually they got asylum in Canada. But it was that sort of ratcheted up tension for a very prolonged time um, that was the final trigger. And so then I've been in all kinds of different therapies since. But, you know, I mean, I'm definitely in a, a better place on the whole. Sometimes it's just a different place, but it's definitely I can function much better than I was even conceivable back in 05. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wrote in your book that specifically you were in a museum in London back at home right. and some right. police sirens went by and right. that must have given you a flashback. And that's what when it all really came crashing in it was the weirdest thing and you know like you were describing with your sister it's it's you you really cannot compute it and i was standing in front of so it was literally two minutes walk from my um apartment and um it was a it was a free museum nearly all the museums in london are free which is great um so i used to you know go into this place quite a lot um just you know just to have a look around or just home in on one picture and think about it um, and I heard these sirens and, you know, in central London, you hear sirens all the time. I mean, you know, like any capital city everywhere. Um, and I just started streaming with tears, standing in front of this beautiful painting. And then I became utterly convinced I was going to be arrested and I would never see these pictures again because I'd be in for life. Mm-hmm. It was totally irrational. Um, but it was clearly to do with what had happened in Uganda because we know that the police were involved and there was corruption. So, you know, um, this um, dear brother, his wife, the day after he disappeared, his wife made a report, a missing persons report at the police station. Um, The following day, that report had already gone missing. Wow. Um, So that was when, when we were beginning to freak because, you know, that just doesn't happen. Um, so the police were always a threat in the, you know, in my sort of paranoid state. Um, and then coming back to the UK, of course, it was a completely different setting, but it was just all sort of jumbled together in my head. Mm -hmm. Did your wife have any lingering effects also? Not so much. Um, I think we're just very different temperamentally, um, and I think um, she was only indirectly involved with some of this stuff, but she knew she could tell that I wasn't in great shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because the children were young, I think one of the things she used to try and do is she could tell when I was actually very edgy and she would try and give me a bit of space from the kids when they're screeching and shouting and all the rest. Mm-hmm. But other than that I think well neither of us knew what was going on and and knew what if anything could be done yeah how were you able to cope were you coping at all were you sleeping too much what what were some of the other things that you were doing to deal with this well I think so one of the bad habits I I learned at boarding school is that you don't show weakness and you don't show what's really going on. And so you create a kind of mask. And I was very, very good at it. Um, And I think, you know, because every sort of expression of mental illness is different and, you know, no two people are going to be the same. 
um, it's very difficult to make generalizations. But one of the things that you can distinguish is between what's sometimes called low and high functioning depression. And so if somebody is high functioning, they might even be joking around and, and you know, engaging socially and conversationally um, and, you know, getting their job done or whatever. And so the casual observer isn't going to think, well, in fact, it wouldn't even occur to them that there might be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely me. I, I just hit it all well, but I now realize that inside it was just all crumbling. And uh, um, it was unsustainable um, indefinitely, um, as in fact it proved. Yeah. But you were able to get some medication and some therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you still taking the medication? Yeah, I think I'll be on it for life, probably. Yeah. It took a very long time. In fact, I had a sort of, in fact, the, the month that the book came out, I had a big crash, which I think was, well, it was totally related to the book, but it was also lots of work things were sort of piling up as well. But it was, it was the, the idea of just being very exposed. And so anyway, that, it, was a, it was a kind of mini crash. It wasn't like it had been. But this was, um, what are we now, 2020? This was 2018. And I'd been on the same medication since 2005 and uh, with only one slight alteration. And so um, I was very fortunate to have a good psychiatrist and he just said, right, this is ridiculous. You've just been on this kind of formula for too long and it's not really making a difference. It might be keeping you from being worse, but it's definitely not helping you function better and I was very happy for him to do that and and so he he worked through one or two options I think one of the hard things about medication is in contrast to a lot of physical treatments um, and physical problems the psychological psychiatric drugs is much more of a sort of trial and error inexact um, science and so you're saying right well okay let's let's try this thing uh, or what about putting that into the mix and and it feels a bit random sometimes now fortunately my guy was pretty responsible and he helped me understand that you know there were different groups different families of drug um, there was one that he tried that summer that was pretty catastrophic and actually it just suddenly made everything worse and that was a horrendous sort of three weeks. I started, I had tremors and everything. I was tre- having tremors in my sleep, which was pretty weird. And so I rang him up and I said, look, I don't think this is right. He said, no, it's definitely not. Let's get you off that immediately. But it took a few, a week or two to sort of get it th- flushed through my system. Mm-hmm. But the amazing thing is the next combination of drug he tried was, um, it had an effect almost immediately. And the way I described it was, it was about two days after I started this combo. I woke up and for the first time in, I think, probably 15 years, I didn't wake up with an overwhelming sense of dread. And what was so funny was that I, I was kind of thrown by it. So I woke up and I, I couldn't work out what was different. I couldn't, something was missing. And yeah. then I suddenly realized what it was. And I realized, oh no, there's a really good thing that it's missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just seems that this particular combination had done the trick. So that, that's one of those things. I, I think I would say that drugs are never a cure, 
but the, when they work at their best, they provide the means to function better so as to work through stuff that you wouldn't have capacity to do so otherwise. Yeah, exactly. When I was first on medication, it was within the first day I could wow. feel a dramatic because wow. for me, it was not as much of a mental problem necessarily. It was so physical in that I wasn't really sleeping well, so I could sleep for 12 hours and not feel any more refreshed. And then I just felt heavy. I felt like I weighed 400 pounds. I couldn't hardly move. Yeah. And so really instantly, I had energy. I stayed up to like 10, which for me was late. I couldn't yeah. stay awake that long. So it was pretty amazing. And again, once the physical symptoms were relieved, I could actually figure out what was going on. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. great. I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah. Uh, so I have kind of a bunch of scattered questions. There isn't much of a trajectory, but story of my life, (laughs) a big portion of your book was about how the church deals or rather doesn't deal with mental illness very well. Uh And in your observation, is it getting any better? I think, I think it probably is because I think in different ways, people are becoming more comfortable with talking about these things, but there's a long way to go. I actually think that the whole COVID thing because it's been global. I mean, this is the weirdest thing about this is that we are all isolated and, you know, depending on, um, you know, different countries, different states or whatever at different stages. I mean, the big fear in the UK now is that we, we might go back into some pretty tight lockdown. We were under lockdown in our house for 120 days with both our kids, which was just extraordinary. I've never, you know, anything like it so you have this isolation and you're being very local because you know the police would stop you if you were on a a motorway and they want to know where you were going wow Um, you weren't meant to go more than a few miles from your home and you know fair enough that's 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 one of the ways it, it deals with things but and yet at the same time because of technology we can communicate globally. And here's the other thing, we know exactly what's happening going on globally as well. So we know that all over the world in our isolated little silos, we're having the same experience. Mm-hmm. And everybody's found it hard. I mean, you know, there are a few sort of uber introverts have, have loved it, but I think even they have struggled because I'm pretty introverted and I've struggled. But um, I think actually, because we've all struggled, I think this will in a funny sort of way help the church to realize, oh, okay, it's not as straightforward. You can't just sell someone to just sort it out or be happy. Yeah. And what's difficult about mental illness is that it's your brain, your mind, your body, it's spiritual, but it's all the things and it's so easily reduced. Uh, I have a brother who has very bad sleep apnea. So he's unable to sleep basically. And this has been going on for years on end. Mm. 
which when your body doesn't get sleep, it can't repair itself. And he had horrible anxiety because of it. And, you know, he's just told, oh, well, you just have unconfessed sin. So. Oh, that's absurd. Yeah. Absurd. Yeah. And of course, they didn't know until. He was actually told that. Yeah. And he did not know until in the past year about that it was the sleep apnea that was causing this. So it was wow. years of just misery and not really oh. understanding why. Uh, so that's really unfortunate. And yeah. I've had another sister-in-law who has been depressed and she went to a Christian counselor and she was very upset when she was taking antidepressants. And uh, it's just interesting why, why it, everything is chalked up to a spiritual problem when there is so much more to it. Mm. Absolutely. I think partly it's fear, partly it's a kind of approach to life and the things of God that needs things to be neat and kind of mechanical so that it's like a slot machine. You put something in, you crank a handle and things click and whir and you know, do whatever they do, and then out pops something. Yeah. And it's, it's predictable, it's re- repeatable, it's, you know, you, you know what you're dealing with. As soon as you start talking about mental illness, it's a whole different situation. And you, you can't predict it. And it doesn't seem rational. In fact, sometimes it really is irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a very um, reductionist and narrow understanding of the world the only conclusion you can draw is that it's sin. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually why I think is no accident that the oldest book in the Bible is tackling exactly that kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. the book of Job is who knows how old. And you've got people there who are drawing all kinds of conclusions about the different suffering causes of suffering that Job has had. And even his wife gives up on him. Yes. And so he is utterly alone. And, you know, one doesn't, I can't even imagine the anguish he's going, going through. You know, and then to lose his, his health as well as everything else. Mm-hmm. And then these idiots come and, you know, spend time with him. And to begin with, they're doing a grand job because they say nothing. It's the moment they open their mouths, it goes completely downhill. <laughs> yeah. And what you said reminded me, you had mentioned the mental health prosperity gospel. Uh And I had had this epiphany earlier this year, watching the documentary American Gospel. Uh I've seen that. Yeah. And I was really thinking like, oh, I had been taught that, well, if you're struggling, just Mm. pray the right prayer. And God doesn't want you to be anxious. He clearly says, don't be anxious. So, you know, just pray and he's obligated to take up the other end, right? Right. Which, uh, if we look at that in any other aspect of life, we go, oh, well, that's not right. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think th- this is maybe a sort of wider issue, but it, it, it strikes me that um, if you have the kind of mentality that needs things to, to fit into a formula and a grid, then your God is inevitably going to be pretty small because he's going to have to be squeezed into the way you understand the world 
and you understand life. And there are a lot of Christians and, and people in other religions, of course, but certainly, unfortunately, Christians, even people who take the Bible seriously, um, do precisely that. They squeeze God into their little box. And I think one of the fascinating things about the way the Bible presents him throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, it's, it's, it's there pretty much on every page, is that the one thing you cannot do to God is squeeze him into your box. He will always surprise you and subvert you. And so I think we make a very dangerous jump from, you know, when Hebrews or Paul will speak in terms of the full assurance of faith, come with the full assurance of faith. In other words, we can talk about confidence. The mistake people make is to assume that that confidence then somehow sort of bubbles over into anything else we might want to talk about mm -hmm. as if that Im immediately gives us a, a magical gift of punditry to be able to comment on world events and things like presidential elections and um, you know pandemics and all this sort of stuff as if we can say yes I have the full assurance of faith because of Christ leads me to be able to have um, confidence about all these other things because the world seems to fit according to the pattern I like or I, I've gone for. But, you know, it, it just doesn't work like that. So you have to be able to have a degree of mystery and unknown and uncertainty about things. Um, so the best person, the best summary of this, I think, so you know the story of Corrie ten Boom, amazing Dutch uh, woman who, with her father and sister, were protecting um, Jewish people uh, people fleeing Nazis in occupied Amsterdam. And of course, they all end up being arrested and Corrie is the only one who survives the concentration camps. Her sister Betsy dies of cancer in the camp. Is it cancer? Anyway, I can't remember it, but she dies. And um, Corrie is completely broken and devastated because that was her last kind of anchor to something good. And so Corrie ten Boom said, we should never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And I think that gets the humility and confidence combination exactly right. Yes, we can have confidence, but not about everything. Not about things that, you know, it's impossible to know. Um, and not about things that we might like to know, like our interpretations of events or even the Bible. But in the end, what matters is where we put our confidence um, outside of us. And that has to be Christ. And that is where confidence lies. But he doesn't promise a free ride or an easy ride, rather. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he does promise suffering for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's that funny verse. You know, you know, you get these sort of posters with sort of sheep or nice rivers and some, you know, some lovely promises of the Lord and yeah, that's all good and fine. And it's very easy for me to be cynical and rude about it. But you know, there's that, that promise in, in John 14 where Jesus says, you shall have trouble in this world. Well, put that on your sheet poster. I mean, basically he says it, it's a promise. Yeah. yeah. Now deal with it. But I have overcome the world. He then says, mm -hmm. so it's not that that's the end of the story but he just doesn't quite promise a, a sort of charmed and rosy tinted life. <laughs> no. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course. And everyone, I think people will often interpret that as, well, he obviously means we'll be persecuted by the world for believing in Jesus. They don't necessarily interpret that as just personal struggles either. I just don't think you can cut a knife between it all. And actually in the West, what we call persecution really isn't. Not even Uh, close. Yeah, it's, it really it profoundly frustrates me, you know, certain restrictions or, or whatever inconveniences um, are deemed as some kind of global spiritual battle against. And, it, you, can, you know, just get real. <laughs> yeah. So obviously everybody is familiar with the Bible verse, the heart is deceitful above all things. So does this mean we should just ignore emotions? Hmm. Well, take that sort of magnified. Let's say, okay, right. What is the heart? Well, it is the center of a person. It's their identity, their personality, their temperament, but their behavior. It's all of this type of thing. Does this mean that we can never have a relationship with trust with any human beings? Because hearts are always deceitful all of the time and is unlike anything else it's deceitful i can't trust myself but i can't trust you or anybody else well no of course not it's not an absolutist thing and and that's partly because as human beings we are not the devils of hell we are made in god's image so there is original goodness Uh, that image is is broken and distorted but it's not destroyed it's spoiled um, a bit like a you know an old master painting that someone has you know thrown a tin of paint over mm-hmm. you know yeah it's it's been ruined, but you can see the original masterpiece coming through some of the drips um, and in Christ, that masterpiece is fully restored and actually even better than it ever was. but the point is, I am not as bad as I possibly could be, but I'm by no means as good as I was created to be. But in Christ, I will be. So, deceitful above all things. Yes, of course. But um, there's a reality that our emotions are a gift from God, very often to be the kind of canary in the mind, the, 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 the first indication that something's not right. Um, now, it might be because I've perceived something wrongly. So I've misunderstood. So I'm feeling terrible because I thought God promised me an easy life and things are not going well. So my emotions are going up all over the place. And it's because I've, I've sort of concluded something false um, for whatever reason. Um, or it might be that, um, you know, I'm overworking and the stress is working its way through my entire body. I mean, there's quite an important book that came out quite recently called The Body Keeps the Score, Mm -hmm. which um, I can't remember um, the author's name, but, you know, that's all about how every thing that we do in life is going to have some kind of inevitable physical, biological effect. Well, of course it would. What do you expect? Um, so it may be that our emotions um, are telling us that whatever behavior or activity or work-life balance we have is totally unsustainable. Well, that's a good thing. 
But then there are other times when our emotions actually do seem to relate to reality well. Um, and some things that give us joy or that um, terrify us, we are right to be joyful or terrified of those things. Mm -hmm. So one's just got to be discerning. But I think this is why it's so crucial to avoid total isolation, because on my own, those emotions get magnified, they get blown out of proportion, they become a kind of sort of internal ticker tape, you know, like on, on TV news. And the ticker tape is just constantly on repeat. And, and so you're not reading the signs and seeing what's around you any differently than this constant ticker tape. And so we need other people to help us just ease out of that narrative and begin to look at things maybe in a slightly different way that actually may be more um, closely related to, to, to the true situation. Um, so I, I think we are very suspicious of our emotions and that's basically because of the enlightenment over the last 300 years. And we have this absurd idea that facts are right and feelings are irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, and Western secular society is the only one in human history that has done that. So throughout human history, however long it is, we are the only ones who've done this. And it is a catastrophic error. Yeah. Well, of course, if you think about it for a minute, emotions all have their purpose. Mm -hmm. um, even anger, though it's right. not good, it is a natural response to danger often. Absolutely. And it can help get your adrenaline spiked. If something right. is in imminent danger, it'll spike your adrenaline so that you can have more strength or whatever. Right. So everything, however negative it feels, has a purpose. Right. And I've been hearing that, that there is no such thing as a negative emotion. An emotion is just a response to your stimuli. Right. And it can just be perceived or it's negative and just it feels mm -hmm. negative. I think one of the problems with that is that that originates in a kind of um, Eastern Buddhist mindset that is trying to get away from all um, individual kind of engagement with reality. It's all about sort of withdrawing both from the highs and the lows um, and that withdrawal is the only way to deal with this. And, and you know, so, you know, the whole... I mean, it's trendy, isn't it? And people were talking about, I'm, 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 you know, getting quite zen or whatever. <laughs> As if that was a really healthy thing. Now, sometimes, okay, I can see that there's a place for it. And particularly if one has high anxiety, there might be some useful physical techniques to, to, to lower that anxiety. Um, I, I fully support and endorse that. But if that is a life goal to basically withdraw from all emotional engagement with everything, then I think that is living less uh, full a, a kind of life that we were made to have. And so we, we're, we're really missing out. The issue is to try and work out how we handle these emotions and do it in a mature way, rather than just trying to avoid them altogether. So the idea of just saying, I got to avoid 
bad thoughts or negative thoughts. Well, it's not that you indulge them, but you do need to figure out what they're telling you. Mm -hmm. We all know that mental illness can really affect children. Right. And they have a parent that's suffering. And it can obviously impair the parent's ability. So how can you encourage some parents in not feeling guilty or ashamed of how they've been a parent, um, how to work through it in a healthy way? Should they involve their kids in the process and explain to them what they're going through? Yeah, boy, I think that's certainly one of the most painful things. And I know that there's plenty I regret deeply about the impact on, on the family. And of course, one of the things about children, I, you know, someone once said that a child sees everything, but can interpret nothing. So, well, certainly when they're younger and gradually as one matures, you begin to be able to process stuff. But when you're small and you don't have the tools and you don't have if you like the framework, the instinctive assumption is it's my fault. So children will think it's their fault mm -hmm. and that's devastating. And so I definitely got it wrong. And I, there were times when I was doing everything I could to sort of hold it together and I would sort of lash out and just, you know, my anger was just so unhelpful. And it was, it was unreasonable. So it wasn't a righteous anger at all. So yeah, it was a very painful and difficult thing. And now that they're older, of course, um, you know, we've begun to be able to talk about these things. And one of the things I did when they were teenagers was, and I understood things better, is that I ended up, um, because I was traveling so much with, with work, I ended up writing them each a letter. Um, by hand and each of them ended up being about eight or nine pages and the main purpose in the end in doing that was to make it abundantly clear it's not your fault and we've never really talked about those letters that's okay though but I just wanted to that was just so important that whatever the legacies were, that would not be one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see actually in both of them, they do have a sensitivity to others in anguish. And maybe in the Lord's providence, that's one of the sort of few good things to come out of this. Yeah. I think I recall you likening depression to drowning mm -hmm. and the physical things that happen to a person when they're drowning their brain shuts off and their instincts kick in they actually can't speak and they will start flailing in a completely uncontrolled and unpredictable manner and that's why when you're taught how to rescue someone you come up from behind them so they can't see you and whack you because you will get punched in the face if you're not approaching correctly. And so I think that's a very apt 
description, and that kind of segues into one of my questions of how should one not speak to a friend or a loved one who is struggling? It's all, as you say, it's about the approach. I think, again, everybody's different. I think there's got to be the sense that there is no condemnation and there are no easy answers even being offered and that actually if the best thing at the moment is just to sort of sit in silence or and stare out the window or maybe to read you know each read a book separately or, or whatever then that's absolutely fine that actually there is a there is a total freedom and trust in there and that is a very rare thing and it's an incredibly hard thing to offer somebody and you know you don't you're, you're not going to try and help somebody with say depression or sort of deep anxiety or something else you're not going to do it for your self-esteem because if you try you'll be you'll be cracked pretty quickly because you're not going to get a lot of it you know sort of bolstering from it in some ways it's going to be like hitting your head against a brick wall which is why it's an incredibly loving thing to do because um you just have to be doing it almost blind saying okay well i'm just going to stick here i'm just going to be so the word that I think best sums up what I needed most at the darkest times was to be accompanied. And that, that implies presence and pretty much nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't imply finding words. It doesn't imply doing anything. It might, you know, it might say, you know, bring round a casserole or something. Okay, yeah, but the, the, the point is, it's, it's just about being for someone. Um, so I say in the book at one point, you know, I needed friends, not fixers. And I think that's the crucial thing. I, you know, there were, I, I knew that I had one or two professionals who were on my case. Um, I was very fortunate to have um, a, a senior psychiatrist who gave his, um, some of his time pro bono for free um, to, to work with people in ministry. Um, you know, I would be paying hundreds of pounds um, in the normal run of things. They're very, very kind. Um, and I knew that he was, he was, he was good. Um, you know, he was sort of up there. Um, so I knew that they were professionals who, who I trusted and whose skill set was all about trying to find, well, not necessarily fixes, but improvements and management and so on. So I don't need that from my mates. Mm -hmm. um, so I think maybe the, 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 the heart of it is, is for a good friend never to presume. Don't presume that you know what is needed. So you, you come and you accompany and then if something is needed that you can offer, you'll be asked. And then to trust and be willing to talk. Um, and that is an act of incredible generosity. Um, it's hard to do and not everybody can pull it off. Um, maybe because they've got their own pain and, and, and stuff that actually is too close to the bone. It's okay. But, 
in the end, if, if that's something that's difficult, then don't try. If that makes sense. It does. It reminds me of the often talked and joked about difference between a man and a woman in a marriage when men are always trying to fix their wives' problems and the wives are just like, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen to me and tell, tell me you're sorry for me and then we'll move on and, yeah. you know. <sighs> well, there's something in that, but um, funnily enough, I think, <laughs> I, I don't know what it means, but I think in ours, we're probably the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're all, we're all such a complicated thing. I, I actually just don't really believe all these sort of stereotypical groups. I mean, you know, yeah, there are things like Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and all these things that tell you what you are and what you're not and stuff. And there's something in that, no doubt. And there's something in men and women being different. But in the end, it's irrelevant if you don't quite fit those categories. Just deal with who you are rather than the fact that you don't fit a category. That's irrelevant. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Uh, do you have any social media that you would like people to follow? Well, I suppose everything I do is pretty much on my blog. There are a couple of little videos that we made for the book um, that are quite fun. So on my blog, there are pages for my books. Um, and so you can find those there. So it's markmenel.net. Okay. I'm on Instagram and stuff, but that's not particularly, you know, it's not yeah. a <laughs> You are an Instagram influencer. I am not an influencer, and I should hope that nobody is influenced by my Instagram. Um, I think that people will start living a very odd life if they, they try to be influenced by mine. <laughs> Maybe I should, though. I read this article this week about this uh, studio, I think in LA, obviously, um, that was letting out space in one of their studios that had a fake private jet set up. Oh, my. And you could hire it for $64 an hour. <laughs> and someone called out a whole bunch of influencers who had their photos taken pretending to be jetting around the world. Wow. Then maybe I should be doing that. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that you could do that for such an inexpensive. Well, I know. I mean, I think yeah, now that it's only $64, I think the whole world will be trying it. Yeah. And it will kind of lose its cachet. Yeah. <laughs> just on my way back from Fiji, you know. Right. That's funny. Are you working on any books currently? Well, I am. Um, I'm, I'm currently doing a doctorate, a doctorate ministry in the States, um, although obviously at the moment I can't get there because I'm not even allowed in the country. Um, <laughs> and um, so I'm doing that through Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And um, I'm doing that on sort of worldview stuff. And I am trying to work on some things that will work hopefully in parallel to a novel I'm trying to write. And I've written about half the novel, um, but I was, I'm wanting to do some study to give it a bit of, I guess, sort of worldview philosophical underpinnings. Not that that will come out in the book, but I want to be able to, to rest it on some things in terms of what I discover. So that's a kind of work in progress. And so the hope is that both of them would lead to something published, but who knows? If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But, um, oh, and next year, actually, is quite exciting. It's the 20th anniversary of my first book called Cross-Examined. And that's with IVP, UK IVP, which is now separate from the US one. And so that's having a, a 
new edition with a couple of extra chapters and a revision and stuff. So that's fun. That's coming out in March. Awesome. So just for closing, I have a few questions and these are totally up to you. If you want to give me one sentence or if you want to give me 12, however you want to answer <laughs> that your leisure. <laughs> so, um, this one being not an American, when I planned these questions, I was not necessarily anticipating non-Americans, uh, but of these TV shows, which one is your favorite, The Office or Parks and Recreation? Uh, now, you see, we do have both. And of course, The Office is a, a ripoff of the British office. Of course. But I actually prefer The American Office because Ricky Gervais really annoys me. <laughs> He's a bit much to take. He's an angry man, except, but he is a genius. There's no doubt about it. And his humor is piercing. I mean, in a way, there's something prophetic about him. But that doesn't mean to say you have to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's very good at just piercing the bubbles of people's pretension, but also their, their false philosophical foundations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I don't like it very much. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I didn't write down my next ones because normally I'm not recording this early in the morning. Oh, so in Genesis 1 through 11, pre-Abraham stuff, is this legend or history? Um, I think it's neither. Okay. A little bit of a mix, maybe? Well, Genesis 1 and 2, if not 1 to 3 by definition, cannot be history because history depends on eyewitnesses and, and records in the sort of modern sense of what we call history, which is not to say these things don't happen. Mm -hmm. But I think I would, so, sometimes people say, you know, do you take the Bible literally? I say that's the wrong word to use. I take the Bible literally where it demands that I take it literally. But in every other case, I take it literarily. So in other words, I take it according to the type of literature that it is. So that's why you can find in Proverbs, say, the Bible contradicts itself. Mm -hmm. Is the Bible contradictory? Yes. In fact, sometimes within the same verse, and that's on purpose. So it all depends on where you are and what you're dealing with. Now, Genesis 1, I cannot read it any other way than to see at baseline, it's a poem. It's a poem with verses and choruses, and it's got a kind of repetitive refrain, and it was good, and it was good. Um, so the structure of it reflects created order, but it's done through the means of a very sort of, I was gonna say rigid, that's, that's to make it sound negative. I don't mean it negatively, but highly structured form. And that says to me more than trying to sort of push too much into to, to, to exactly what it might mean scientifically. Which I suspect is what was the kind of thing behind the question. And I'll probably get sort of garroted now as a result. Oh, I'm sure it's fine. About half of the people I talk to give essentially your answer. It goes back and forth between, no, it's definitely history. And then other people go, hmm, maybe both. But, uh, I wish that the listeners could see the little smirk on your face. It's fun for me to be able to see you react. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think it's much less of a hot topic in the UK than the US. Oh, yeah? I think there are a number of issues that, because the church 
relatively is so small compared to what it was 100 years ago across Europe and certainly in the UK. I just don't think we've got the luxury to be debating that kind of stuff. There are bigger questions that we are being pummeled by <laughs> that, to be honest, um, life's too short. So, which is a cop out as well. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe in an old earth, put it that way. Awesome. I'll just take that sound bite and put it up on Twitter <laughs> to all of the good, people good. who... Uh, would all our donors, particularly. That'd be really yeah. helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially those in Texas. <laughs> uh, do you think that there are aliens? Um, I doubt it, but I can't say definitely not. But if they are, God made them. Mm -hmm. And I'd be, I, I'd be surprised though, because either he's not told us because they, they don't exist or he's not told us because we don't need to know, but uh, I, I'd be surprised. That's not to say that there, there might not be life forms and, you know, finding water on other planets for instance, is interesting. I'm, that that seems to suggest, you know, very very simple life forms. Perhaps I doubt we're going to see, you know, a kind of real life enactment of Independence Day. Put it that way. <laughs> or if we do, I just hope Will Smith's still alive. <laughs> yeah, but I don't well, think it should happen on the Fourth of July because I think that's just corny. Oh, yeah, yeah. I uh. Can I tell you a rude American joke? It is a very American joke, yeah. Can I tell you um, that Americans won't find funny, but I find funny? Yes. You can choose to include this or not. As you, okay. But basically, what do, we, what do British people call the 4th of July? Hmm. I don't know. Thanksgiving. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, oh, that's funny. <laughs> great so my final one is mm -hmm. the most serious who or what inspires you to be your best self hmm. probably my children um because i feel i've let them down so much i mean interestingly going back to your question earlier about parenting i think the default status of a parent is guilt from the get-go because you're never going to do enough you've never done the right thing there's always more you could do blah 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 and so you just have to figure out what are you going to do with that um and we mess up um one of the best pieces of advice given to me um in parenting was just basically never let your children get tired of you saying sorry mm. You can, you can never say sorry enough, not just because you're English, because English people are always saying sorry, apparently. Um, but I mean, apologizing to your children for, not that their feelings are bad, you know, in the sort of modern, postmodern apology, which is not an apology, but saying, yeah, I got it wrong. I was wrong and I'm sorry, I apologize. And you just got to keep on doing that because otherwise they won't trust you. Um, so I suppose my children, but, I would love to be a better writer. So I'm always looking for great writing. I love 
the way C.S. Lewis writes. He's not as big in his home country as he is in the States. Americans love C.S. Lewis much more than Brits. I think he was great. I like Christian books that are really well written. I'm sick to my back teeth of Christian books that are badly written, and most of them are. And you just think, life's too short. Just get an editor. <laughs> anyway, enough of that rant. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, that wraps it up. I appreciate you doing this. This has been really nice. Not at all. It's fun. And thank you for inviting me. You are very welcome. Tell your family thank you for giving you up for an hour. And uh, yeah, have fun. Good luck with your novel. Thank you very much. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a goal for when you think it might be done? Well, I did think the um, lockdown might help, but um, it didn't at all. (laughs) (laughs) Many other things going on. It sounds crazy, but anyway, there you are. All right. Well, thank you again. Okay, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you. Bye. Bye.